From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Steve Greenwood is a senior fellow at National Policy Consensus Center at Portland State University. Thanks for being here, Steve, on the Oregon Grapevine. Uh, I'm very happy to be with you today, Barbara. I'd like to start just with the word consensus. It seems kind of like a bad word these days. So what? <laughs> let's start there. What does this organization do and why? Yeah, the National Policy Consensus Center, which I've been at now for about 20 years, uh, in short, it helps people work together and it helps people work things out together. Um, and it is based on a consensus model where uh, people actually listen to one another and they really try to, you know, reconcile their interests. Um, and we've had a lot of success over the last 20 years. Who finds you and asks for your help? They do seem to find us, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, people hear about us. I remember when we started, um, actually, one of our first projects uh, with the Oregon Solutions Program, which is one of the, the main programs of the National Policy Consensus Center, um, uh, was the Delta Ponds Project in Eugene. And one of the things that happened in that project was uh, you know, the city wanted to take what had been an eyesore and turn it into a what the mayor at the time called, uh, uh, I think, Eugene's Central Park, right? And, and really turn it into uh, a scenic amenity for the for the community. And this, but the city did not have the resources to do that. And uh, long story short, uh, Oregon Solutions helped the city work with about 20 to 25 partners, um, some of them federal agencies, some of them state agencies, um, but a, a lot of organizations, including uh, neighborhood organizations in Eugene, and they worked together and all contributed, um, you know, resources and actions and, and coordination so that the Delta Ponce today, you know, has the pedestrian bridge a, a, across it, uh, has has trails, it has a, you know, viewing platform. Um, it, a lot of the vegetation has been transformed from invasive species to natural species. And it's, you know, a really pleasant place. Um, but it would not have happened if the city had tried to act alone. And so uh, that's sort of the kind of thing that we do at NPCC. But also, um, once that happened, other communities heard about it and started saying, yeah, we'd like some of that as well. And I think uh, kind of the rest is, is history. We, you know, we sort of, uh, we, we don't do a lot of marketing, uh, but people hear about us. And when they have a situation where they, you know, need to collaborate with others in order to get a, a project done or, or program done, 
uh, or if they, you know, are having problems agreeing on on policy and need to bring the disparate uh, interests together to to figure it out, um, they give us a call. I know you also work with elected officials, and yes. maybe elected officials working with other elected officials, or maybe elected officials working with communities. How how does that <laughs> model work? Well. Um, The first thing I want to say is that one of the things that we have uh, pioneered in a way is the the use of elected officials um, in a different kind of role, um, which we call the convener. Um, What we have found is that uh, leaders of all kinds, but uh, elected leaders in particular, have a power and authority to invite people to the table in a way that people will show up. And as I like to say, they will then act like grownups once they get there. Um, and well, that's a big assumption, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, it, it makes a difference who invites people to the table. We have found that out. And it's important to make sure that people um, actually trust the process, and that elected leaders can, uh, not always, but can provide that kind of forum that people trust that, A, that something is actually going to happen, but but B, that their point of view will be fairly considered and, and incorporated in, you know, whatever the outcome is. So, um, so we work with, with elected leaders a lot in, in that role. Um, but we also uh, occasionally, you know, work with uh, uh, leaders who, particularly who are having some, you know, issues trying to figure out, you know, what the policy should be on, you know, whether it's forest practices or social policy, and, and we will help bring people together and figure it out together. Talk a little, if you will, Steve, about the election process and the fact yeah. that, that politicians run for office and then that's a different job than other things than potentially they need to be doing and those skills that are necessary. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a, just a, a great point. And it actually is something that concerns me after really uh, a public life in Oregon for now 50 years. Um, the the problem the fundamental problem that i'm seeing is that politics is essentially a competitive sport you know you you either win or you lose and you bring in therefore competitive skills in order to win those political races but once you win and you're in the position of governing governing is actually essentially a collaborative sport um it is a in um, an endeavor that you know you need the cooperation of others to get stuff done, and so it requires a different set of skills. And uh, I think, unfortunately, today we have uh, too many politicians. I think who are bringing those competitive skills uh, to bear in governing, and and frankly, it just doesn't work. We have been, uh, in the last seven years, we have been uh, working with uh, City of Hillsborough to 
um, provide a uh, civic leadership uh, academy. And um, we, we bring in new emerging leaders uh, in the community uh, every year, and we teach them more collaborative skills of governing, of how you get people to work together, how you get people to coalesce around a policy, how you get people to sort of listen to, to one another um, and, you know, figure things out. And that program has been successful enough that we now have other cities in Oregon and actually beyond really interested in, in doing that. And that, frankly, gives me a little bit of hope at a time when I need it as I look across the political landscape. Obviously, there are, there are longer conversations about this and learning skills, et cetera. But just in general, as you walk around and you see people, do you have tips to have people think about the fact that, wait a second, maybe you could take a breath and do this other thing, whether it's in line at the grocery store or whether it's at a meeting or in your everyday life? Yeah. Uh, well, I do have some tips. And, and, you know, one of the things actually that concerns me is that the, the, the term of art that we use, which is collaboration uh, or collaborative governance, it is a well-overused term these days. Everybody says that they are collaborating. But we get a lot of people coming to us saying, gosh, you know, we've been collaborating for the last, you know, three years and we just don't seem to be getting anywhere. And one of the things I tell them is, um, just because two boxers are in the same ring does not mean that they're collaborating. And that, that oftentimes, um, and when we look at a situation where people say, you know, we're collaborating, they're not looking for agreement. The individual parties aren't looking for agreement as much as they're looking for victory. And, and actually too often, you know, public agencies come to us uh, occasionally and say, you know, uh, help us to uh, bring a collaborative group together, but what they really want is for us to help them get others to go along with what they already want to do, which is not, that's, that's manipulation. That's not collaboration. And one of the things that we, we talk about in terms of how you work with others is, first of all, to be, to be focusing on what your interests are, um, and also try to understand what the interest of the other person is or the other other parties at the table. You know, we, we uh, did an exercise recently. I was teaching a, a course actually in Finland uh, uh, with international students, and I had them do a, a rope exercise where it looked very much like a, uh, a tug of war. I had a rope laid out and and uh, you know two two sort of goal lines and and I had teams of six people on each side and I said you know your goal is to get the midpoint of the rope across your goal line. I did not say that your goal was to do it first before the other side and my goal was uh, my my instructions did not include your your goal is to beat the other side. I simply said you, your goal is to get the rope across. And in fact, I offered a little um, reward for every member of a team that could get that that uh, midpoint across the goal line. And I then I let them go, and they struggled, and the you know the midpoint of the of the rope kind of went back and forth 
a few feet here, a few feet the, there, the other direction. And they were really, really struggling, but nobody, you know, after a couple of minutes, nobody still had, had quote, won the game. And uh, so I told them to stop. And then I said, well, what, what, what if you actually collaborated? And um, they all kind of looked at me like I was crazy at first. And then they kind of talked to each other and they said, gosh, you know, what if you let us walk across and then we let you walk across? And ultimately, that's what they did. And um, what that that exercise tried to illustrate is that um, too often we are focused on um, you know, foiling the other side uh, from from getting their interests met. When if we're really focused on our own interests, um, there are lots of ways that we might get there, and some of them will be easier if we collaborate than if we're you know fighting with with the other side. Um, the other thing that we often encounter are issues where you know, people have been kind of fighting about an issue for a long time. And they're in what I would call a competitive mode. And they've all exhibited competitive behavior in the past. And there's not a lot of trust between the groups. We've had a lot of those kinds of situations where we've been asked to, to come in and, and, and help them resolve the issue. And um, the incentive or the the temptation for these groups is to because they're having to work so hard is to try to go for the home run uh, probably the best example I can think of this sort of thinking is the Israeli Palestinian conflict where the US comes in and they're trying to to get a peace agreement um, you know within a, a few weeks or or even months of negotiations and that's a that's definitely a home run but with a history of distrust it's just too much to ask people there's too much they have too much at stake there's too much that they are risking um you know to go for that home run and what we have found is that if people start small where their risk is is small it gives them a chance with each other to prove that they can be trusted. You know, it gives people a chance to make a small offer uh, that even if things go bad, it isn't going to hurt them. But if the other side reciprocates, then they can say, okay, well, you know, that worked out pretty well. Maybe we can up the ante a little bit. And we actually had, uh, we've had a number of, of examples of, of that, but but one of my favorites was a project that we did at the mouth of the Columbia River, where there was a need to deal with uh, uh, the loss of sediment in the in the near shore area. But the crabbers were very, very concerned that um, that anything, any change was going to bury the crabs and, and kill off their their livelihood. And and they had been at a stalemate. They actually didn't like each other uh, after um, a few years of trying to work this out. The the situation, the relationships had gotten worse, not better. 
And uh, so we we got involved and we were, you know, talking with folks and and we said, you know, what if you started um, really, really small with an experimental way of distributing this sand, this sediment in the near shore area to see whether or not, you know, it affects the crabs. And even that was difficult, but everybody said, okay, let's, you know, we'll give this a try and we'll monitor this together. And um, I think it was uh, 30,000 cubic yards of sand, which, which in the context of the Pacific Ocean is, is basically nothing. But they, but they did it, they monitored it, and they said, oh, well, you know, it actually worked. And, and the crabs didn't seem to be bothered by it at all. So they said, well, let's try it now at 100,000 cubic yards. And they did that, they monitored it, they did it for a couple of years, and that seemed to work. And they said, well, okay, let's go for 300,000. And this is a group that had been working, before we got involved, had been working for a, probably a decade with no progress. And I remember attending a meeting um, a few years ago where it was the crabbers who said to the rest of the group, you know, we've been doing this for a number of years. We can see that there's no impact on the crabs. Why don't we go for 500,000 cubic yards? And the, and the group made that decision literally in 20 minutes. Sometimes you have to go a little bit slow before you go fast. But we've found that when groups have a history of distrust, um, to try to go for the home run is not a winning strategy. But um, starting small and building that trust in increments is a, really a, a, a recipe for greater success. We are living in times, and I've been having some conversations with both publicly and privately about contention, and especially in Congress and in elected bodies of officials, and everybody seems to not get along with everybody else. And there was a time that I even remember, so it wasn't that many decades ago, when there was more collaboration. There was more, or whatever the right word is, there was more human contact. There was more trying to listen to the other side. It didn't, it wasn't along party lines. It might be along philosophical lines. Where are we going and how, what is your view of that? Yeah. Uh, well, I have uh, also have that history uh, as, that you talked about, Barbara. And one of the things that I was proudest of uh, as an Oregonian was what we used to call the Oregon Way. And most people today of voting age in the state of Oregon probably do not realize that the progressive legislation that Oregon is most famous for, things like the beach bill, um, the, the bottle bill, uh, the recycling uh, legislation that was uh, revolutionary at the time. All of those things were either co-sponsored or led uh, often by Republicans as well as Democrats. And we're a long way from that at, at this point. And it, it concerns me. Um, it's one of the reasons why we do this work. And part of the problem is that people... Um, you know, tend to talk 
and, and associate these days with people who agree with them. And so it becomes a, a little echo chamber. And um, one of the things that I really like about the work that uh, I've been doing for the last 20 years and, and that the center continues to do is simply bringing people together to talk to each other um, and try to work things out. And that sometimes that includes having a meal together. Uh, we try to get people to, to make sure that they're meeting face-to-face -face and talking with each other because it's a lot harder to demonize people when they're sitting across the table from you. One of my, uh, my favorite stories is a, uh, a story about a project, very important project in the state, around the, the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. And this was years before the, uh, the occupation took place. But there was a, uh, an effort to bring different parties together to work out some of the conflicts that had been uh, going on with respect to the practices on the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. So they had, you know, environmental groups like the Sierra Club, Audubon Society, et cetera. And you had, you know, local ranchers, um, you had, you know, the federal agencies uh, that were responsible for doing the management. And at first, they really did not trust each other. Um, they came to trust the process, which is why they stayed at the table. There was a, you know, a, a, a neutral third party facilitator who really was trying to respect what everybody's interest was. And uh, I was not involved personally in that project, but I did come to the last meeting of the group. And what struck me was um, one of the ranchers, one of the, the, the main uh, leaders really in the community, turned to the representatives from uh, Sierra Club and Audubon Society. And he said in a very, very sincere way, he said, you know, um, I didn't know whether I was going to be able to work with you guys when we started out, but I want you to know I'm really thankful that you, the both of you, have been part of this process because I've learned a lot about you, and we've been able to work some some things out. And they they successfully came to consensus. That is, they all ag agreed on you know w what should be included in that plan. They worked all of that out together. Somewhat ironically, you know, a few years later, the Bundys and their uh, cohorts tried to um, take over the, the wildlife refuge. Uh, well, they, they, in fact, did occupy it for a time and, um, and tried at that point to drum up uh, support for their cause from people within the community. And they failed miserably uh, at that. There's actually a book written about it. And they failed because the people in the community had had this experience. They had, you know, community leaders saying, no, we, we need to work this stuff out with these folks. Uh, that is with, the, you know, environmentalists, public agencies, et cetera. And the community had adopted a kind of collaborative mindset that, uh, 
I think the Bundys had not quite done their homework. They really chose the wrong community to do that occupation in because the community really did not support what, what they were doing and basically told them to go home. And, and that was because of that um, previous experience the community had at, at actually working together. Is there anything you want to add here before before we end this piece of the conversation of you sound a little more optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I, I talked uh, a little bit about this civic leadership course that we that we teach uh, at, currently at the city of Hillsborough, and we're going to be expanding uh, this next year to uh, city of Hermiston and city of Sisters. One of the things that I I love about that Leadership Academy is that we've had about, I think, seven years. We've had 84 people go through the program. And I cannot tell you, um, after spending weeks and weeks with these people, I can't tell you, any of them, who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. And the reason for that is because they don't care. They, you know, in the context of that leadership academy, it's about how do we work together to actually make the community better. And um, I've been focusing in in recent years about this notion of civic capacity, and how leadership um, really needs to be seen. Public leadership needs to be seen in terms of its ability to increase our civic capacity. That is our capacity to address issues, to solve problems, uh, to take advantage of opportunities for the public good. And I think at the national level, we've sort of lost sight of that. You know, our civic capacity at the national level isn't particularly high right now, uh, certainly not in Congress. And the people uh, that I meet uh, these up-and-coming new leaders going through this program really have given me hope. Uh, and it's, it's actually inspiring to me to see just how strongly they believe in helping their community. And if we can do more of that, I think there actually is still hope for democracy. Steve Greenwood with the National Policy Consensus Center at PSU. Thank you so much for coming on the Oregon Grapevine and uh, expressing a little hope. Yeah, thanks, Barbara. It's been great to talk with you this morning. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. 